and hear from SquarePeg. Founded in 2012, SquarePeg is a venture capital firm in Sydney, Melbourne, Tel Aviv and Singapore that is on a mission to empower exceptional founders. We are an early stage technology investor across the fintech, enterprise, healthcare, consumer and emerging spaces. SquarePeg has over $1.6 billion in assets under management across multiple funds and has invested in category defining companies including Fiverr, Canva, Stashaway, Airwallex, Credivo, and Tomorrow. But we're here to talk about something quite different. In a shed in Australia's capital, Canberra, there are millions of maggots working to transform food waste into livestock feed. These tiny little wriggly friends are the beginning of a huge transformation in how we feed animals, manage waste streams, and think about supply chains. A business leading this transformation is GoTerra, a robotic insect farm startup founded by former sheep farmer Olympia Yaga. Founded in 2016, GoTerra builds insect farms that run robotically, meaning they can be installed theoretically anywhere. Olympia has raised funds in Australia from the likes of Grok Ventures and AgTech-specific fund Tenacious Ventures. And it's a story we want to tell here because her product is just unusual. I mean, we come across all kinds of products and services at SquarePeg, but maggot robots are on the rarer side. And we thought it might give any founder inspiration that is not working on a SaaS-only product. But Olympia didn't start with maggot robots. Really, she was interested in understanding how can we combat climate change? I started just wanting to make protein and fill that, that the other tech problem that we're looking at today, which is the creation of protein to feed the world 2050, the deficit of protein production, where we physically can't improve protein production more than about sort of 60% or so over the next couple of years. But we need to do more. And where is it going to come from is our big question. And so that's where I started. Insects are an interesting answer to that question because they can be fed on waste streams and you can take this very small thing that can be grown in a really small place and and you can turn it into protein. But the longer we looked at insect production and the conventional ways of producing insect protein today, they've all just replicated industrial farming systems. And the challenges for industrial farming systems is that the cost of feed is 70% of production. And the reason that 70% of production is that transport is the biggest cost. Okay, flip that on its head. Waste is a trillion dollar global problem. And most of the cost of waste is in the moving of waste. So what the hell is the difference if I'm moving that waste to a farm to upcycle it or to a hole in the ground to get rid of it? And I realized all we'd done was recreate the same problem, but I just had this cooler solution where I could say, but no, it's maggots and it means something. And that was the tipping point for me. Using insects and robots to do our dirty work sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie, but it is exactly what Olympia has created with GoTerra to tackle the world's big issues. GoTerra is infrastructure that delivers on the circular economy. So we put robots to get insects to do jobs. The flagship product is waste management. So we're deploying systems that manage waste using insects. So they eat food waste and consume it and turn it into protein. That protein can go back into the supply chain as an animal feed or as a fertilizer. And so that's us, infrastructure, the sexy stuff. I think the challenge that we're facing today is that we all recognize the need to create circularity in our systems and deliver on you know, how we do our work, whether that's produce food, whether it's deliver a service. What we're seeing now in um, our current systems is the need to automate those services so that the human element is removed, particularly from the most dastardly of our jobs. And so our system, accepts food waste, just like the tip or landfill does, but then manages the entire process of managing that food waste, processing that food waste, feeding it to insects. The insects get rid of the food waste um, and the machine makes sure that everybody's happy while that's happening. So the robots have empowered the very natural process of insects 
to go out into the world and do a job in a way that we can charge a fee for service. The life cycle is a fly lays eggs. We let the fly's eggs hatch and mature for five days. Those five day old larvae are then seeded into a unit and then they consume waste for 12 days. And then at 12 days, if we were keeping them, we would take them and let them pupate. They'd become a fly, the circle of life would continue. But at 12 days is the day that is about the tipping point for when they stop eating and want to start becoming a fly. And so that's the, the cutoff point for when they are no longer efficient waste management systems and they are trying to do a different job, which is become a fly and reproduce. So we cut that life cycle short. We devitalize them with a process of sort of hot water and cleaning and then we move them through into processing. So right now we do a diff two different methods, one's dehydrating and the other one is uh, a rendering process. And so the insects sort of have, there is a circle where we do have to produce our own insects. So we are vertically integrated in that way. We create our own insects and then we deploy them to do jobs. But then a portion of those insects never become flies and they convert it into a product and turned into the supply chain. So currently the bulk of it is going into trials for dog food and then we're working on building out our testing systems to really understand quality assurance. So how do we make sure we've got a testing profile that will catch nefarious chemicals or you know, it's not enough just to test for what we conventionally find in livestock feed. You've got to, you've got to do better than that because we're not feeding them oats. We're feeding them stuff out of people's kitchens, so it might have rat poison in it or, I don't know, anything silly. And so how do we make sure that that quality assurance process is really established? And that's where the majority of it's going at this point. We have some smaller chicken clients that love our stuff. We have some reptile producers, so turtle farmers, those sorts of things. But the majority of it is going to testing for dog food and then secondly, us understanding our own testing process so that quality is managed and maintained. Okay, just a quick recap. Goterra takes a waste stream, converts the waste stream into lava, and then harvests the lava to turn it into what becomes a sellable product. Not only is Olympia tackling food supply and protein creation, but Goterra is also a pioneer in overcoming the often understated role of logistics in the fight against climate change. When we think of climate change, often we think of reducing our reliance on fossil fuels, but waste management also plays a huge role in exacerbating the problem. It's a trillion dollar problem up and down the supply chain, but mostly in the logistics of waste. So the moving of a very heavy thing to a place for it to go away. That being said, the environmental cost is past reckoning. So it is the third largest producer of methane gas in the world, which means it's the third largest contributor globally to greenhouse gas emissions and to delivering impact from, on climate change. And so that cost is immeasurable. And, and I think the challenge is that we, as a culture and society, we recognize that food waste or any waste is a problem. And we have a sense of ownership to that, but the effort it takes to manage those things is still outside our social construct. We, we want the convenience of things going away. And so we just still find communities managing waste hard. Currently, food waste is a fairly, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's easily understood who makes food waste, right? So it starts at the farm gate, people who produce food have waste, and then it sort of just continues to happen where varying stages of the supply chain of food getting to our plate and then post our plate, waste happens. So manufacturing, transport, warehousing, supermarkets, restaurants, your table at home, we get our waste from every member of that demographic. We process food waste from everything from the farm gate to a household and everything in between, shops, uh, shopping malls, multi-unit dwellings, the entire lot. Food waste is evolving though, and we're seeing countries like the US and UK reporting you know, a third of their food waste reduced in these last couple of years. And there's a lot of investment now into innovations to prevent food waste. So there's fake skins, there's plastic packaging that um, creates better transport, there's better transport logistics and transparency. And so we have to understand that if we're doing it right, we should actually have less food waste. And so our job isn't necessarily to hope that there's still more food waste in the world, so much as it is to make sure that our tech will be able to manage whatever is waste 
as we move forward. And so that's our goal is we'll, we'll manage the problem today, but we're planning and designing for the problem for tomorrow because we believe that a lot of the food waste we get today won't happen in the future. And we hope so because we're processing upwards of two and a half tons of bread a week, just bread. You know, that's on top of all the other kinds of waste and, and that's bread in the bag could be eaten bread. And what a disgusting privilege it is that we can throw that away. Olympia is now well-versed in logistics, waste streams and food-centred supply chains. But we shouldn't underestimate what a strange and magnificent solution maggot robots are. Very few people could look at the global waste problem and think, I know what we need. It's maggots. But that's Olympia for you. And in learning how to do her business well, she's had to learn plenty along the way. And so we were like, okay, what if we can actually make a box and the maggots go to the waste? Because then that's got, we've got rid of that transport problem, saved some, some of that cost, but we're still doing this really cool thing. And it was when I brought that idea to Grok and Jeremy Kwonglaw, as he's apt to do, stared at it with his incredible way of thinking and goes, oh, it's a waste management business. And I was like, oh yeah. And then off we went. And, and once you see that pattern, then you can settle in and get to know who you are if that's what you do right and 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 i think about that a lot is it's you know as the company's grown it stopped being olympia goterra and it's now goterra and olympia works at goterra and the beautiful thing about that is that goterra now understands that she is best at making robotic systems that get insects to do jobs and she measures that based on her passion for saving the world and managing large tons of waste with insects. And so that's how we got there. But I think you have to almost not know where you're starting. You just have this great idea. And if you've done your inquiry well, and you've listened to the experts around you, you'll find your way to, to who you are. And then once you get there, you can really kick it over. Yeah, so at first it's just like, can I get the bloody things to grow? And that was like a really interesting exercise in humility. And it got, you know, you'd get to the point where you're like, I can't stomach another slice of humble pie. Thank you so much. I'm very full. Like I can't, I just physically can't like not grow maggots another day because it's hard to do what nature does easily. And so once I got humbled the hell out, but in that process, like, can I actually just get a maggot to grow in a bucket and then get a fly to lay eggs in a different bucket? And if I can actually pull that off, then, then we'll think about what kind of bucket I'm going to put it in. So I didn't really go straight to tech. I was really stayed where I felt safe, which was like, hands-on, touching things, producing things, growing things. I come from ag, that's where my passion starts and finishes is that hands in the bucket, dirt under your fingernails connection to growing something. But the best part about doing something from this beginning in a very raw way is that failure is the absolute fertilizer for innovation you only really think of great ways to doing do stuff when you've had to do it the hard way for a really long period of time and so you know one side sort of got them farming then i knew that i had i needed a sensor thing to tell me when it was the humidity was wrong and i needed another sensor thing to tell me when it was too hot and i needed a fan to push all that around and, and so then you start the googling process and you start talking to engineers and you start trying to figure out how that actually works in a box and so it's a successive movement where you're like i've learned this thing and now that's not the thing that i suck at anymore and so i'm going to go out and learn another thing and I'm going to suck at that for a good long while and sucking at it will actually make me better at it. And so then I will become the expert of that next part. And, and when you're doing it, you just feel like you're in la la land. I, said, I think anyone that knew me back in 2018 just thought I was a bit of a manic, non-blinking dickhead because I was you know, trying to be suave and wearing my T-shirt with blazer and socks under my shoes and you know sw swanning about startup events and, and having these discussions with my peers and and they're like you know and we, you know we just had to code through the night and I'm like I swept maggots off the ceiling it was great it's fun you know like it's just it was just this really strange time but what that did in in the the really gritty part of being in manual land was and the fact that i'm not an engineer and i couldn't I, and i didn't have any money so i couldn't buy my way out of a problem 
and I technically couldn't actually make the solution. So he physically had to just keep doing the bad thing and the hard thing over and over again until it got, I got good enough at it to know that if I just had this little thing that went like that or uh, a sensor that turned something on and off. And so then I could actually articulate that to an engineer so that we could build the first, the first prototype. And, and she was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And now I look at it and I'm like, okay, that was ambitious. Olympia might not be an engineer, but that has allowed her to see her creations in a completely different light. When she tells her story about the machines Gotera uses to break down waste, you can hear her passion for the project, personifying these robots with almost human pronouns. She calls them MIBS, which stand for Modular Infrastructure for a Biological Service. And so the waste MIB to me is like, she's so amazing. So she's a shipping container and there's a waste hopper at the end and the human interaction happens at the waste hopper. So you push a bin up to it just like you would any compactor or any other system that manages waste. And you lift that bin and it tips into a chute. And then the mechanics of it are sort of fairly industrial. So you hear the grinding of a macerator, the thump of the pump. And to me, it's like I've sat with it for so long that hearing those sounds it evokes the feeling of success because you know when she's making those sounds that it's working <laughs> and you're like oh yep look she's going yeah and so and, and i can tell you every sound that she makes when she's not working um, the first time i took one of our production managers up to lend lease to show them how to service the mib and and i had my hand on the feed pipe and she's like what are you doing and i'm like just checking she's okay and she's like what and I'm like, you can feel it pulsing through, you know, the food waste is going up this tube. And I said, and when the thumping is the right tempo, you know that she's okay. And she's like, oh, all right. Um, so that's that. And then of course the robotic system to me sounds so cool because it's not as noisy as the prototypes that have gone before them. And it's a very rhythmic clicking and sliding sound as trays are being moved around the unit. And it is to a tempo. So you just, you know that she's going and she's doing her job. From the human perspective, the smell smells like a bin. So not the best smell, but not the worst smell in the world. There's a vinegary smell to it because we add fermentation to homogenize the waste and keep it clean. There's, she's bathed in a blue light, black light, because there's a fly light over the top of her. So it, at night, when all the lights are down, she's underneath the neon. But yeah, it, it, she's an industrial machine. Like it's a big, it's a big bloody thing. It's seven and a half tons of stuff. So I don't know if she's like conventionally sleek or beautiful, but to me, because I've seen that evolution of where she started, it's one of the most, yeah, it's my proudest thing. Yeah. More, more proud of that than my children, to be fair. And everyone's like, oh my God. I'm like, yeah, well, like I made my kids, but like I do that without thinking, right? Like I, I, you know, I had my first kid when I was 18. I really wasn't thinking then. And so it's like, you know, you just made a human. And yes, that's a miracle, but without much effort, right? But this took so much effort and so much thinking. And so I, it's, just, it's just a prouder thing. Olympia clearly saw the beauty in machines and maggots, but when it came to investors, this was a different story. Gotera is far from a traditional venture-backed business. They sit at this really unusual intersection of hardware, biology, and logistics. And in a world of internet and software as a service, Gotera screams physical. And truthfully, that scares many investors off. And while Olympia was figuring out how to build the product, she was also learning how to sell it. And for that, she needed a comms matrix. I realized really quickly once I got into the startup scene that the stories you tell investors and your peers better not be the ones you tell your customers at least in this industry. And I learned that, of course, the hard way. And so I sort of started getting better at pitching and a few people were giving me feedback and sort of cheering me on. And so as always, you, you ride that little mountain and you're like, I can do this. And thankfully, karmically, there's always someone to be like, and push you back, you know, remind you just where you stand in this scheme of things. And I was talking to a, a customer, multinational waste management company, and 
And he was asking me all these questions and I was naffing on about sustainability and circular economy and saving the world and all this sort of stuff. And he was just like, he's like, I don't give a shit. And I was like, all right. And bear in mind the waste industry, I think what I love about the waste industry is people, most people in the waste industry have started at truck driving and are now regional managers or, you know, there's it's this really interesting industry where people have mostly done every step of that business and understand it. But there, it's also a very real industry. We don't mess around with sort of weird, you know, underhand talk. And he's like, I just don't give a shit about that. He's like, how are you fixing my problem? And I was like, we fuck. You know, like I just, and I stalled out because I knew the answer, but I was so conditioned to selling what investors want to hear and what was what is kind of the flavor of the month in startup land, which is, you know, all about sustainability, circular economy, you know, saving the world, climate change, blah, blah, blah. And you're just like that I hadn't developed this, the language around why this was actually a good idea, even though I knew it. Right. And so I stumbled through this sort of explanation that was like, yeah, but like if we do this, then you won't have to drive as far and you can put it on your lot. And it was like really rough and any accelerator would have like whacked me on the nose with a rolled up newspaper for sort of putting it that way. But he was like, that's something that we can deal with. That, that actually makes sense, right? He's like, I care about the world. He said, but if I'm going to try and get my customers to buy into this, he's like, they don't care. Even the ones that say they care, they don't care. They want less cash being spent on putting stuff into their bin. And so, you know, I learned really quickly that we can have purpose as a company, we can care about climate change, but we need to care about our clients and what they care about. And first order effect, our clients care very much about how much it costs them to manage waste. And so the perfect customer to us is technically any customer who has to manage the burden of food waste. When you talk about who we, who we want in that conversation, most of those will be enterprise clients. So, you know, we work quite closely with Suez, for example, and they have multiple clients, whereas we only have one, which is an interesting proposition for our investors who are like number of customers this month. And I'm like, still the one. And they're like, number of churn. I'm like, no, it's just, just the one. And then they're like, okay. You know, and that doesn't, not that we have one customer, we have more than one, but like, there's no, there's no rise in that customer number like you would see in a SaaS or an, a different kind of company. And it's because our focus are enterprise clients, people who already understand how to move waste around, who have lots of clients, who have strong customer acquisition departments, so really strong sales departments, great accounts receivables departments, they're our clients because we want to provide the service of managing waste. That's the job we do well because we've got the robots to deliver. We don't want to drive trucks. We don't want to do logistics and we, we would love to just keep sort of low numbers of clients. And, and as a startup, that's a great proposition because when you're trying to manage lots of clients, <laughs> that is a different cost conversation. So our perfect clients are enterprise yeah. And to service the enterprise well, she needed money. And she started looking at funding options, attempting to figure out if Goterra was the kind of company a VC could get interested in. When you go through an accelerator, you learn to speak with the cadence and the, and you, you talk about the things that investors are looking for and the patterns. And, and I didn't have that. And, and, and I didn't ever get there entirely. There's even still pitches I gave in this last round where I was like, ooh, no, that's not what I wanted, where I wanted to go. And I think in the end that comes down to personality, right? So I am inherently more of a storyteller than I am a sort of a systems thinker. And so my, as you can tell by this podcast, my, my delivery is more of a yarn than it is a sort of this, then this, then this equaled that. And that was the end. And so that made pitching difficult. I think the second part is that particularly in the seed round, back to that sort of belief that you need to know who you are to tell your story really well. I, I, I always liken GoTerra to like 16 year old girl 
you kind of know who you are. You think you know what you want to be and you try it out by wearing a weird top and then you don't pull it off because you put it on with the wrong pants, right? And so, and so everyone's like, ah, you're, you're kind of almost there, but now you just look a bit weird. And, and that's sort of what it felt like in the sort of stumbling machinations of like trying to pitch this business that by its very nature did not freaking fit. I think I was so fortunate that I had advisors at the time that believed in me and believed in what we could be. And, and they, they gave me the confidence to just keep going out there. And, but I got some of the most brutal feedback and it was mostly because people just didn't think that I belonged. And, and I say that because it was interesting, right? So you would see other peers who had SaaS platforms and they'd get feedback like, I don't think you've got your CAC right, or I'm not sure if that's the right TAM for you, right? Which is like kind of constructive, but me, they're like, no, you don't belong here. You are not getting venture funding, move on. Yeah, it was a very, definitive like this is not the place for you and and that was I just didn't know enough to get it <laughs> it was like kind of naive and I was like oh cool so Barry doesn't like us but anyway on to Tom you know like I just I didn't take it personally because I wasn't embedded enough in the industry in the startup scene to get what was happening because and then because other people believed in me I was like oh they said I'm fine so off I go Moth, you know I'll keep being fine I, I was fortunate it, it, that shouldn't that doesn't take away for how much work it was but I was just fortunate that I got to meet Jeremy and that Jeremy has a different way of thinking of things and so he was able to find a pattern that worked for him. Jeremy Kuang Luo is the CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Grok Ventures, the investment house founded by Mike Cannon Brooks, one of Atlassian's co-founders. Grok's investment portfolio has many climate-focused companies, including Vow, a portfolio company of ours. Okay, back to Jeremy. That's not normal. Not all investors can do that. I think nine times out of ten, we're kind of just drinking our own bathwater on our ability to be creative outside of patterns that feel safe and he could. And and the the real honest story of venture is that once Grok came on board, everybody else. So there was, you know, still hard work. I still had to do the, the yards. I still had to do the conversations. I had to do the, but you don't need to do any more heavy lifting once you get that one penguin jump off the ice and it just so happened that my penguin was kind of the big cool penguin that everyone wanted to hang out with right if it had been a smaller less awesome pink penguin i may not have raised as big around we may not have gone as far and so i think that you know if there's other founders listening i think that's something that we all need to actually be a lot more honest about both investors and founders like the LinkedIn blogs will tell you that you just have to keep hustling and, and that's just bullshit. Like the hustle isn't about just grinding and grinding and grinding. You've got to try and find a leverage, a, a thin wedge that you can shove in at whatever crack you can find to break that thing open. And so this isn't about banging on 700 doors or calling 500 customers. This is about doing better job, making good relationships so that you're the people who believe in you are out in the world advocating for you in a way that gets you in the door. And it's a very different thing to, I think, what we mostly advocate for with founders. So yeah, super lucky on in the seed round to meet Jeremy and, and have him can look at our business and understand it because that knowing it, it, it grew me, it grew the company, we could really leverage that expertise and that, that oversight and thought, but you know, yeah, it was, it was the brand of Grok that, that kicked the rest. And don't take away from the discernment of Rampersand or Giant Leap in any way, but I'll be honest, I hadn't even considered speaking to either of them until I got Grok across the line. And as an only founder, I couldn't. Like, I could physically not do more than one investor at a time. Like, I was just like, it's just you until I'm done, and then I will go to the next one. Like, I couldn't do any more. So, you know, they found out about us through Grok, but but we, we hadn't even got to their door yet. So I don't want to make it sound like they had been hanging in the wings, not investing, but it was just more that the traction you get once you kick that one big one over is different. 
Yeah, so in, it actually, like, there was nothing as um, creative or as strategic as that, aside from a very strong understanding of my own self and who I am. And so when I was getting all these sort of kickbacks and, and sort of admonishments of, of, for trying to be in this place that I obviously didn't belong, look at me. Well, I do now, like, hello, look, I've got my shirt, it says Go Terra on it. It's like, I definitely belong here. But back then, I, you have to think about it from a startup perspective, I didn't fit on more levels than just the fact that I was hardware. I was non-engineer, no scientist. There was nobody with a cool university on my, on my thing. It was just me. It's like, who's working for you? I'm like, that'd be me. And I've got these two incredible human beings that work with me and they have some degrees, but you know, it's from Sao Paulo. There was no MIT, there was no UNSW, there was no UCID, nothing. And then on top of that, I'm like 40 and I make inappropriate jokes. And sometimes I say dumb stuff or, you know, like I try to get through an awkward moment by saying something silly, which it just takes a special kind of person who, to meet me the first time and go, Oh yeah, no, she's got it. You know, like a lot of people are like, what just happened? Like that was not what we expected, right? And so I think ultimately what that first round taught me and the gift that I got from my investors that first round is, yes, they came on, you know, the flywheel kicked over much easily, more easily one grot came on board, but they still have to sign up for me a single founder in her 40s without any, you know, not, none of the, the tickets or awards to make you feel safe and, and say yes to that business model. And I think that for me became the thing, right? The catalyst that was like, they have to get me actually, they, I'm not gonna change. I'm, I'm gonna continue to send investor updates that are largely gifts sometimes a few numbers like you know i i need this to be real because this is my business and when i can't pretend to be somebody i'm not and so in the series a i wouldn't say i was more confident so much as i just had a different perspective and i always say like i'm incredibly spoiled with the investors that i have they are willing participants they care about the business they care about me they are smart and funny and they get my jokes which is so important and so i wanted more of that and 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 there were a lot of times when i went into meetings and i would have like halfway through the meeting i could literally feel it where i was like i'm having to do too much here to get you to think the right way like you just the train is kind of moving and you're like, it's an interesting train, but you're not getting on the train. And, and they'd be like, Hey, get back to us. You know, uh, let us know how you're going in the race, which, and I'd be always like, yeah, sure. But I, and I wouldn't, and I just left it as is because it was like, no, I, I know what you're saying and, and that's okay. I don't have time to like come back to you when this is a dead end. And I know that you're probably going to just ghost me or, or tell me the polite, but useful no. And so no worries, man. And so I, I just was more comfortable with that this time around. I didn't feel the need to try and be anything we weren't. And, and so I was a lot more upfront than I normally am, which is, a, you know, a lot. And, and I just, you know, warts and all sort of put it out there because I, I think that's what they gave me this time around was the confidence to know that there are people who are willing to back something that looks really inherently hard and very different to the, the stock standard and give it a go anyway. And I just needed to find more of them so I could continue to send investor updates with lots of gifts. Not only did Olympia have to evolve the way she managed her relationships with VCs, she also had to better understand the needs of her customers. And this meant having an intimate understanding of the challenges of waste management by asking better questions. We went through this entire process where we were really small. My goal was in the, after the seed round was to say, I need a client from every segment of the waste profile. I need a client from offices. I need clients from supermarkets. I need a client from hospital. I need a client. To, that way we could start collecting the data to understand the individual needs of these different client segments and how we solved them. It's always the same premise, logistics, logistics, logistics. But we, we now understand that groceries, 
stores, you know, don't want their bins out for too long. They want a bigger bin. They, they have these problems, this problem. We understand hospitals have very liquid type wastes because they deal in sort of mushy soups and stews and rices and things. And so bin liners are important to those customers. And so understanding the sort of dynamic of each of our clients became important as we matured that. And, and us getting better at knowing that. So when they call, knowing what to ask so we could get to know them really quickly and then share, like come back real quick with our expertise. So then you create this security, right? Because we're new and interesting and weird. And, and when you think about you know, Woolworths as, as our client, that's a pretty big leap because they're the fresh food people and they get maggots to manage their waste. And that Messaging-wise, could be a little contrary, right? Like, oh, the maggots are managing the fresh food people's waste. But it's about understanding what their challenges are, what they're going to need, and how we can deliver on that service, right? And so Woolworths' biggest challenge is packaging. So how do we deliver that service for them, and how do we, we make sure that they get what they need? It's still packaged up the same, but giving our expertise creates confidence. As Olympia and I were talking, it was clear that the first few years of her GoTerra experience were full on. Most people who decide to build something as impactful as a startup have a very busy and hectic few years, but Olympia's composure through it all really struck me as special. We found ourselves talking about what had prepared her for managing so well, and the answer turned out to be awful. So I'm prefacing the next section with a reminder that it takes huge courage to share stories that are personal and painful. And I'm really grateful for Olympia for telling this one. My son died when I was 20. He was two and a half. That was, yeah, all of the things, the breaking and the smashing of who I am as a person. And, and ironically, at an age where you don't even know who you are. Yeah, it's bullshit. What a bullshit thing to happen. But also a challenge in an individual self around how you take that moment and use it to evolve or, or whatever. And I think the challenge around speaking about that kind of loss and then how you've overcome it is it always just ends up sounding a bit trite. Like, oh, I learned and I whatever. And it's like, no, no, the, like pain is growth. Like you just don't get growth without pain. But the challenge with like trauma, which is a different kind of pain, is that it, it, it is enduring. And so living with trauma then becomes something that creates resilience, creates capacity to have empathy in a deeper and sort of more meaningful way than you probably would if you've just sort of had hard shit happen. And so I think for me, that's the privilege of my loss is that nobody would want that to be true, but if it's going to be true, then it is a privilege to have that be the thing that impacted me. So yeah, and sometimes I'm better at talking about that than others. And today's not a day where I'm going to get through it without having a bit of a cry. But that's that's okay too. And I think you know, I think if nothing else, like I have enough, I have an ability to be much more compassionate to myself and the things that I go through than I would if this hadn't happened, right? Because now in the, in the scheme of shit <laughs> that could go on in my life, that's bottom. And so maggots on the ceiling, fires, flooding hail, pandemics, it's like, these are reasonably shit things and collectively they are kind of holy shit, but they are in no way as shit as as it could be and and so you know i'm i'm fortunate to have that perspective because when things are shit for my team nine times out of ten i can be that cheerleader for them and i can handle a, a, the burden i can carry around that kind of stress is is a, is a lot higher which you know how lucky because if you're going to be a startup founder jesus christ so many of us we don't want to think about death we avoid grieving when we lose someone, distract ourselves, look away, and often we do this more so 
when we encounter other people's grief. You, you may as well have a, a thing growing out of the front of your head. They don't want to mention it and they don't want to talk about it. And and it, it is where you know, I, I learned a lot of things on, on the back of, of that. And, and one of them is that I hate the pink elephant in the room because I hated for so long that people treated me as the girl whose kid died, but nobody ever wanted to talk about the kid. And so, so now as a human, everyone's like, you're very direct. And I'm like, mm, yeah, because <laughs> I just can't bear that pink elephant, any pink elephant of any kind. It's like, can anybody see this? The massive thing that's just walked into our conversation. Does anyone want to bring it up? And so, you know, I've got to manage that sometimes because sometimes she can just walk through and that's okay. But other times the fact that I won't let it walk through unannounced or unspoken about is, is, is good because we don't, you know, I'm constantly lifting rugs going, what's all this under here? We need to get it out. Let's talk, you know? And so that's important. And then when I moved to the U S which was on the back of, of him dying, I, you know, I just wanted to get away. So I, I, I trained horses, which again, I'm, I'm super fortunate. I've, had the opportunity to do really cool things in really cool places with incredible people. And, and I, I got to do it in a way that very few people could. And so I trained with some really interesting humans and got to ride very expensive horses and, and all of that was fun. And then I married a US Marine and, and that's how I ended up in the stupid little seaside town where Dawson's Creek was filmed trying to exist while my husband went on combat deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. And I'm possibly the greatest walking anti-war protester on the planet. <laughs> so it's like this weird life that I'm living where I'm like, I don't believe that war should happen. I am wholly against war, but also proud that my husband just got a nice, nice little medal because he did a great job. And, and I'm also proud of his effort and the work that he puts into delivering. But because I I am an activist and I'm a bit militant, I, I it doesn't seem to matter where I am in the world. I need to try and fix something if I see things going wrong. And and that's how I ended up doing the work with US Special Forces around family readiness and, and working with families and starting a charity to try and help women and children who are connected to the military. Because we don't get to have a life in a, con in a conventional sense when you're in the military, and particularly not in the US military in that time. You must confine your life, your career, your existence within the constructs of what the United States Marine Corps needs you to do. And so that means that you will be a single parent. You will largely have to deal with the ebb and flow of an individual who is both at both times, one of the biggest parts of your life, but also the most absent. You will have to deal with all the rest of that. And so, yeah, like that, you know, end up as a photographer, end up working in digital media. Like you're just like, all you're doing is looking for some sort of relevance that doesn't involve you selling candles on a pyramid scheme. And and it sucks <laughs> but the privilege for me in that scenario was for good or for bad the united states marine corps has some of the coolest leadership principles in the world and some of the most con like mature leadership instruction and philosophy that you can find and you know simon sinek is super famous but he's basically just taken publications from the military and <laughs> and made them his own, right? Leaders Eat Last is, is a US Navy SEALs situation and a Marine Corps situation. Like these are not Simon Sinek stuff. They're, they're real things that exist in the military. And so I got to work with some incredible leaders, some of the shittest as well, and see literally from top through to bottom what the impact of those decisions, those use of bad language or good language or good orators and bad orators, good leaders, bad leaders does from the top to the absolute lowest human in, in, a, in an organization. And, and that, that no, you don't often get that kind of insight into to that kind of thing. You don't get to live that experience in, in a lot of other places and, and you don't go to work in the military. You live in the military, it is every moment of your life. And so, yeah, like I got 12 years of that. 12 years of the United States Marine Corps telling me how to be a good wife and how my, hus how, how my husband should be a good Marine and, and, and living within the constructs of that. 
did teach me a lot around leadership and teamwork and what it takes to do hard things over and over again for really long periods of time with people you might not like. You know, I had friends in the in the US that I don't know if I would have been their friends in Australia. I don't think, we didn't have a lot in common. They carried nine millimeter Glocks in their frigging nappy bags. Like I didn't carry a nappy bag at all because I'm entirely unorganized. So it's like, you know, I think that, yeah, those are the three things I think for me. Yeah, they're, they're the moments that are the most pivotal and, and coming back and, and starting GoTerra, I guess. It was the agreement when Eric and I met. So I was like, I, I don't want to live in the US forever. I, I, I only intended on being there for 18 months, but he's really pretty and, and I didn't want to leave him there. And so I was like, I was like I'll stay. But the grind of deploying and, and living in military lifestyle, it just, it just wears on you after a time. So in 2009, uh, 2010, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. And he was in the same place, but we, just re-enlisted you know we've got four more years for the core and so those last four years were like really really difficult because I was already moving and so we came back to Australia and tried to find our feet that's why we came back to Canberra because it's my hometown and it's just easier where you know things are but yeah he, he loves Australia which is great and so yeah we've we've found our feet and and off we go. Coincidentally, the episode from This American Life this week is called Good Grief, and it's dedicated to the stories of people learning how to grieve, and it's brilliant. Truly, I commend it to you, but back to Olympia, whose 18-month trip had turned into a 12-year journey, and she was back in Australia learning how to adjust. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre. It, it, like, we look, we look back now, and like, why did we do that? Like, but when you're in it, you're like you don't you've lost sense of normal right like you and you ex, explain away the most ri- ridiculous things and and i you know, when we came back to australia it was actually really acute how different we were because our jokes didn't make sense to anyone let alone outside of the us and and then australians don't care right which i love right we should not put that much emphasis on our military we should not create accolades or mythology around them it's the leading cause of the ptsd is the is creating an iconic feel and a mythology around our military and yet and so in australia people are like what do you do and he was like oh i i was in the military and they're like huh you know whereas in america they're like wow you're so amazing and he's and so that was super weird and then you know just random stuff uh, that people just didn't get about us and we didn't get about the world because we'd been living in this odd place for so long that even though we thought we weren't like militarized, we were entirely, <laughs> we were part of that grieving machine whether we liked it or not. And it was only when we got out that we realized we weren't normal anymore. And so, yeah, it's been a bit of a road back, but like I said, I think, you know, sometimes my staff is like, everyone gets, the feedback right and not in the individual and i'm like yep and that's a marine corps thing like not the marine corps if one person doesn't make it everyone does push-ups and and the philosophy about that is that if you're you shouldn't have let them fail where were you when they were not doing well why were you leaving them behind and and we sort of adopt a lot of those philosophies here it's like no 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 if someone didn't make it that's because you forgot that you were in a team and you were just walking this road on your own. And, and, and that's made a big difference to particularly kicking off this year, like as the team's just getting to know itself better and better, everybody's just really, you really see that now. And now there's a lot more accountability. It's like, hey, let's go, come on. You know, because everyone knows that like together they're, they're, they're working on these problems. And so, yeah, it's a bit different. Olympia had gained significant clarity from living a process-based marine life in the U.S. On top of that, she realized the importance of leaning into new relationships with others, keeping their thoughts and ideas in mind. I used to say to people, uh, thanks for helping me with that. It's nice to have another voice in my head beside my own. And, and, And that's sort of my way of sort of talking through, sometimes when you are working on a project alone, you're sort of having your internal monologue, right? There's nothing to bounce yourself off and so when you do get into a place where you're like super scared 
it's quite difficult to rationalize your croc brain tendencies to fight or flight with the more logical tendencies of you're going to be okay you will be fine this will be what you will work out because croc brain's like this is bad run run like yeah like you and and when you're on your own that's even harder so when you've got a team around you or you've got a founder a co-founder you've got a different mechanism right because you can be like this is really shit and they can be like yes it is but we're gonna make it and so it started in the first round last year it was miles davis it took me years to learn to sing by like myself which is just i really resonated with me and and it's a it's almost becomes like a mantra so when i'm really struggling with insecurities around getting something wrong or not knowing how to explain something it just provided comfort to just remind myself of that, that it takes years to know who you are. It takes years to develop such a knowing that you can sing truly and comfortably as if you are you and you're not trying to be Christina Aguilera or whatever. Do you know what I mean? You're not trying to sound like anyone else. And so this year it's James Baldwin who's one of the most beautiful writers in the world and it is not everything that is faced can be changed but nothing can be changed until it's faced and i think the reason why i chose that this year is we're going to do some really big stuff this year we did big stuff last year but this will this year we're really we're really pushing through some pretty big stuff and i need to remind myself that I might not be able to change all of it and I might not be able to achieve all of it, but I have to turn into all of it equally and as openly and as honestly each time, irrespective of whether or not I get it across the line for any attempt of change to occur. And I think too with James Baldwin, I can hear his voice. And so, yeah, that's sort of an interesting thing when you can reflect on the sound of the human that said that, that that believed it and understood it first when you can hear their voice in your own head and use that as a mechanism for reflection because it sounds more credible because you're not just telling yourself that now you James Baldwin is telling me this <laughs> which just brings a different layer of credibility and and support when you're trying to do things on your own and internally When you begin to build a successful company, many leaders will tell you to hire a strong workforce, but the biggest challenge that Olympia and most founders face is how. I think that the biggest thing that I've done wrong is every time it hasn't worked out has been because I have somewhere in the decision-making process fallen prey to ideology, impression, perception, where it's like, oh, this is the kind of person I should be hiring at this stage. This is, this person will make people think that we're legitimate or this, this candidate is the kind of candidate that people would expect us to hire. And I feel sometimes a little bit unsure because the people that I resonate to tend to not fit in those molds. And so then you have those competing feelings where you're like, oh, am I uncoachable? Am I one of those CEOs that never hires the this, the good people that are better than they are? You know, like, cause we're all trying to live up to these incredibly difficult goals of like, hire people that are better than you. I'm like, what? Like, yes, but what does that look like? And how do I know if they're better than me? And how if I know they're the right better than me? And how do I know, like, what if they're better than me, but I hate them and they suck? Like, I, do you know what I mean? Like you've got this sort of really weird aspirational direction and then, and then no, no information on how to execute on that idea of hiring good people. And, and so, yeah, the times I've got it wrong is when I've tried to hire someone that fit a mold or perception of a certain role. And I've gone more for the person that fit the sort of stereotype that you read about than I did the person that I liked or felt would do a good job. I don't know what the answer to that is for everyone, but I know for us what we've fallen back on and what our head of people, Laura, has just managed to do really, really well is just keep coming back to that first principle of who are you? Know yourself as a company. And if you can just lean on that as hard as you can, then you will build the framework and the metrics to go, if we are who we say we are, then this person must be able to do this. They must look like this. 
and they have to deliver on this. And if the person that we're speaking to today doesn't do that, then they can't be here because it doesn't matter if they're the former CEO of, I don't know, Ford, they're not going to be our, the best person for us because two of these things do not work or fit. So yeah, just having the confidence to know who you are as a business and what your business actually needs. And I just, again, I think it's unfortunately one of those things that just iteratively you get better at, but inherently you're going to fail at each time you have that leap forward and your business sort of grows up and you're like, ah, that worked a year ago. And now we're like bigger and shit. So I don't know. I think the biggest thing with people is you have to be compassionate to yourself and you, and be honest with your team. And so be honest about when you're bringing people on, be really upfront about what you're looking for. I, I think it's really important to bring, particularly when you're small, bring your rest of your staff on the hiring journey. I don't think it's useful to keep it in behind closed doors. And then when things go south, I think the same. I think sometimes, particularly with higher end roles, we don't tell the team when things aren't going well. And then all of a sudden somebody's disappeared and they're like, what? <laughs> and, and if you're a good manager, you haven't denigrated them in public or you haven't said anything bad. And so everyone feels like, it's like, what do you mean dad just moved out? I thought you guys were happy. Didn't we just go to the movies together as a family like five minutes ago? Like, and so I think a more transparency across your team in what struggles are being managed and how things are doing are going, I think is, is really important because you're going to get it wrong, but your team needs to be resilient to that flux. And, and the best way to do that is transparency. So I think, I think those are the things that we've learned so far. Being as ambitious as Gotera is, tackling these huge global problems, where to next? Yeah, look, for us, it's, it's, it's always going to be the same. More maggots, more mibs, more money. And, and I think this year what's going to be big is that we have converted the clients. We did what we said we were going to do and, and what was bought on the box, which was people want what we do. We do what we do really well and we do it because we give a shit. And, and, and because those things are true, the, the momentum around getting that out into the world is immense. And so we're going to purposefully push forward in expanding into new regions, accelerating the growth of this Canberra plant. And, and we've got some really exciting stuff around sort of the tech and, and new products and new new robots to get other insects to do jobs and so yeah it's a big year right but how cool because like honestly like you raise a lot of money and then you're like okay go do the thing and, and then inherently it feels like that might not be true and i find myself in february of 2021 going oh shit <laughs> it's happening and don't let me like don't let that take away from the effort that it takes and the amount of work that's going into it but like we can see it and we believe it and we and we know that it's there this is not something that we're just sort of shoving across the line like it's walking itself and so it's ours to lose and so it'll be a big year this year you're making sure we don't let go of things that we don't get run over by our own momentum and that we're just making sure we learn and and grow and 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 go out into the world and do more great things with maggots Olympia's final word was specific in how this podcast story is not to push people to buy the product, but to raise awareness about these global climate and sustainability challenges. I think for me, I really want Agoterra and myself to just be seen as leaders. And so I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more interested in talking about how you get here, how you keep going from here and, and, and sort of how I believe our company is evolving rather than I want to be like buy our products now and if you you know like i just we speak for ourselves on that issue and and i believe that people are find us more compelling when we're talking about how you get a maggot robot to market than why you would want to buy one and so because the buying one is is not the hard part frankly with that raw honesty and selfless dedication as a leader in such a tough and significant issue, maybe that's the true reason that we need to support this incredible business, Goterra. With this innovative technology and proven success in making 2050 look promising, why wouldn't you? That's it for our conversation with Olympia Yaga from Goterra. 
To find pictures of the maggot robots, go to gotera.com.au. A big thank you to Olympia for her time and for being so frank about her experiences. It has been a real privilege. A reminder that we're still hiring for a couple of incredible roles in our venture capital team and newly created listed equities team. So if you want to see if you've got the experience or qualities we're after, you can find details on our blog at spc.vc. As always, this episode was first released via our weekly newsletter, All Signal, where last week, my brilliant colleague Dan shared what he'd learned about community building from Israel. In particular, his article unpicks what makes Israel's startup culture world-class, and if you've been meaning to read Startup Nation but have never quite gotten around to it, then this is the one for you. You can read the article online and subscribe to All Signal at spc.vc. Today's episode was edited and stitched together by our wonderful producer, Sarah, and I'd like to end by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which I'm speaking to you today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to elders past and present. We'll see you in two weeks.